Welcome back to the Zeitcast. My name is Jonathan Martin. I want to give you just a few words about what you're about to hear because I'm going to drop you right into the middle of something. Late last night, I recorded some thoughts because I'd had some conversation around Otis Moss III, a clip of his that I shared here on campus about the author, pastor, John MacArthur, some things he had said about black church tradition that felt very dismissive. Having these broader conversations that along with other things that I was hearing, just stuff that continues to bring to bear some of the things I've been trying to articulate here in this space, some of these through lines, the problem for one of when people seem to think that they, uh, that everyone else has a culture, but that they do not. Also some deeply flawed understandings of the glory of God that I find to consistently be a bug in the system, eschatology, bad eschatology, dangerous eschatology, because how we think about the future has everything in the world with how we're going to live in the present. So I know that the tone of this, because I was feeling pretty fired up, and when I get fired up, those of you who know me well, know that I unintentionally channel the spirit of one of my icons, the nature boy, Ric Flair. So since this episode is a little bit rough and tumble, I know the tone's a little bit different from what I've been doing. I just feel like I need to prepare you for that. And it's felt like we need a different theme, a different intro for today, precisely because it's a little bit rowdier. So the ride gets a little bumpy, but I'm glad you're here with me on this journey. Once again, welcome to the Zeitcast. Let's go. talking about a lot. Um, I, I want to get to the broader thing, but for the moment now to kind of bring this full circle, the MacArthur comments unaddressed. Uh, well, take a deep breath here. because there's, there's a lot to say about this. Friends, let me keep this simple, actually, because really, I, I just want to talk about two things. This illumines, this illuminates two key differences that I'll admit, I do often find myself hitting my head against the wall a lot right now. And part of where you'll feel some heat on this throw is that it's it's very easy for me to say and genuinely believe that when people disagree with different points of my theology, hey, well, I I disagree with them about that, but hey, they're still my fam, they're still part of the family of God. We're connected as Christians. There's no de-Christianizing anyone. It is increasingly clear all the time in these conversations that generally doesn't work the other way, that to think differently about some of these things puts you on the kind of the wrong side of everything. Hence the that's how Satan would answer level of generalization. Um, And there's so much we could say about that. The the MacArthur quote, right? Uh, Goodness. That... As MacArthur has done repeatedly, 
And look, here's someone who I know, and I'm not judging the motives of his heart. I, I, I don't think that matters, who, I, I, but I'm not talking about his, anybody's interior motivation. John MacArthur doesn't believe he's a racist. It just so happens that he believes the exact same theology that basically all overt card-carrying white supremacists believe. All of his stuff about, and MacArthur has talked about these things so many times over the years, all of his content, uh, specifically around the the curse of Ham, uh, you know. The, the, I, I don't I don't even know if I want to get too far into that. Uh, he just so happens to teach the same things that ten out of ten white supremacists would agree with, and that they weaponize. Now that doesn't mean that everybody who thinks this is somehow consciously a racist, but the the. The glib dismissal of black church tradition. So slaves weren't educated. So therefore, you know, this is kind of a malnourished, ill-formed, not fully formed Christianity. And that's the stuff that drives me so wild. It's then like uh, um, that, which is really comes to the first point I want to talk about. But it wraps up so much. My ultimate problem with John MacArthur and so many folks in this ilk, and I'll tell you the truth, because this probably put me in a certain mode today, listing, uh, maybe what to hear, let's check in and hear a sermon from a uh, church that I came from at one time. I knew what I was gonna hear. I was gonna hear about abortion and the gay agenda, because that's all he ever talks about now. Uh, here's the, 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 the ultimate problem I have in this direction, and I hope y'all will hear me. And I'm going to say things in my preachy way. I am trying to help somebody who's going to resist right now, but I want to let loose the worm and it's going to start crawling your head. And one day when life happens to you, I hope that this will actually move in such a way that it could bring some freedom. The, the problematic assumption, number one, is that people like John MacArthur assume they are culture free. Now, what John MacArthur is always critiquing everybody else's culture. Black church has a culture. Black church has a story. Black church has a tradition and a history. But John MacArthur, much like many evangelicals, considers himself to be an ahistorical phenomenon. Now, that's he doesn't really think that. He thinks he's got some kind of lineage. I'll get into that in a moment in terms of the kind of reform, reform Christianity he thinks he comes from. But... At the end of the day, he ultimately considers himself to be vanilla, culture-free. Don't hear white about race here. White is in like a white blank sheet of paper. That everybody else um, brings their culture into it. All the ethnic people do this. Do you know how often I hear people in that world rant in sermons? This is the kind of thing I hear all the time. Yeah, you're trying to bring in your Romanian culture. You're trying to bring in your Russian culture. You're trying to bring your Chinese culture. When you come to the word of God, you put down your culture and you start following Jesus because they don't have a culture. They didn't grow up anywhere. They don't come from anybody. Meemaw and Papaw didn't have a culture. They are culture-free vanilla and they have unmediated access to the text. Everybody else, the problem with their work is that it's formed by culture, but they haven't been formed by culture. They've only been formed by the pure word of God that they are drinking and the sermons and good gracious, all the self-referential things that are said about everybody's all preaching. I'm just giving you the word of God. I'm just delivering the mail. Well, Shockingly, no one is culture free. And John MacArthur, and, and, and part of what's wild, whether you look at his church or any one of these churches, any church, any group, any gathering of people, is that of course there are dynamics there. Of course, there are people that come from particular places at particular points in history where the not only their experiences, but the experiences of the people that raised them, the story of the people they came from, are shaping and informing their story. Therefore, Everybody then brings their own experiences and stories to bear when they're reading a text. So no matter how much you want to be shaped by the word, and I believe as a Christian, to submitting to the word of God, submitting to scripture in this way. But everybody's reading through a lens. The problem is they don't think they have a lens. They don't think they have a lens. 
they think they are culture free, but again, everybody else has a culture. And the second thing, nobody in that camp is asking me, but I'm also, once again, here's something else that could really help you. And I'm, I apologize if this sounds, um, I, I really don't want this to sound condescending, but let me, let me start right here for my second point. So it's not that folks like this don't spend a lot of time in the scripture. John MacArthur in particular is incredibly prolific. He's written so many books. Uh, there is a televangelist who would be the opposite of MacArthur, who MacArthur who speaks disparagingly of any of us from kind of charismatic Pentecostal, all kinds of words. This will be interpreted as being harsh, but boy, John MacArthur dechristianizes everybody all the time for all kinds of reasons. At any rate, um, on the other end of the continuum, there's a very charismatic evangelist, Pentecostal evangelist, that me and my friends have so much fun with. Uh, I, I, I will say this. I don't think I feel bad to say this. His name's Perry Stone. Perry Stone sermons are my vice. They're my vice. And also one of my delights in life. I love Perry Stone sermons. He talks about the Noah Code. Um, this is a guy who cannot interpret the Bible in English, but seems to think he can do crossword puzzles in Hebrew and Greek for end time scenarios. Unbelievable. And the way in which he delivers things. The, the, so my joke with my friends, I don't know if any of y'all are Arrested Development fans. Do you remember Tobias Funke? I call Perry Stone the Tobias Funke of preaching because I feel like he seems to accidentally stumble into a whole lot of phallic imagery a lot where it's like, do you, do you know, do you know what you just said there? I don't think that means what you think it means. There was uh, one, uh, my friend Chris and I were sharing back and forth recently where there's lots of like, it's about the sword of Goliath. There's a lot of Goliath's spear and Goliath's sword, and it's very visual and a lot of things. To, to, for one to work out in therapy. I just think it's I just think it's funny. But the the point is <laughs> Perry Stone will talk about how he, I've spent 80,000 hours studying script, reading scripture. I've spent 80,000 hours in the word of God, something like that. And John MacArthur I'm sure would say that. I've spent all these hours um studying the scripture all the years. Y'all, this is the thing that's going to this is going to feel a little direct. You know, you can spend an awful lot of hours studying the flatness of the earth. And guess what, honey? The world is not getting any flatter for the amount of hours that you put into this. Um, if the framework is wrong, if foundations are not clear, and in this particular, the Reformed tradition is wonderful in so many ways. There's so much to commend about the Reformed tradition, but the kind of Reformed tradition that MacArthur embodies the ultimate problem with it. And I know I'm talking straight today uh, and I'm not apologizing for it. Uh, Y'all don't apologize when you talk this way. The ultimate problem with the whole system is this. There's, I might disagree with a thousand things, but I'm telling you, this is at the root of everything else. And I, I hear it in any of these sermons that plays out every time. The fundamental problem with that whole theological camp, drum roll please, I bet you don't know where this is going, is they mislocate the glory of God. They mislocate the glory of God. The glory of God is uh, is language that, that saturates this whole way of thinking. But they're thinking about the glory of God in a particular way. And eh, I don't wanna say a particular way. I wanna say in a nebulous way. They think of the glory of God as an abstraction. The glory of God is in God's bright shininess. Now, what we actually get from when God first introduces himself to Moses all the way down through the rest of the story is that God's glory, and this is so clear, I could go to text after text after text. God's glory is located in God's mercy. Do you hear what I just said? God's glory is located in God's mercy. So then the idea of the glory of God is not that God is so much more bright and shiny than us, though God is bright and shiny. It's just not the point. 
when you understand though, when, or when you misunderstand the glory of God, then his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, all of that. Everything becomes, um, the idea is always that God somehow, because God is so lofty, God is so glorious, God is so exalted, that then there's absolutely nothing that we as finite human worms that we are can possibly understand or connect to because God is so lofty, God is so far. Now, what stinks about this is that even in the prophets and the reference that I used, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, is not a reference to God being more knowledgeable or God being brighter or shinier, but God's capacity for mercy. It is God's endless capacity for mercy that makes God God. It is God's endless capacity for creative, self-giving, self-donating love that ultimately makes God so unlike us. Is God more morally pure than any of us? Well, obviously. Is God smarter? Sure. It's just not the point. It is God's the extravagant of God's the extravagance of God's mercy that is so beyond our reckoning. And if you understand the glory of God in that way, the glory of God is located in God's mercy and not in this abstract idea of God's glory as God's bright shyness, because here, here's the trouble with that move. When that's the way that you think, then when you misinterpret that text, then whenever you see uh, things can be cruel, something can be abominable, and you say, oh, well, that might look like cruelty to you, but it, uh, but what looks like cruelty to you looks like kindness to God because God is that far ab above you. I got good and bad news for you depending on where you're standing. Jesus in particular does everything to, uh, to tear apart this kind of thinking how much of the gospels answer the question, what is God really like? And what are the images that Jesus gives to us? Well, oh, well, look, here is a woman here is who, who finds a lost coin who's leaping and rejoicing. Here is a shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. Oh, look, here is a father of the prodigal son. And these are the images God that Jesus gives us of what God is like, of the God that's fully revealed in Jesus. I've read the Bible once or twice, you might be surprised to know. The one who is the image of the invisible God, according to Paul and Colossians, or the language of Hebrews, he is the exact representation of God's being. Man, I could go on a thing right there too. Jesus the is the as the ultimate word of God, is the full and complete revelation of God. For Christians, it's Jesus that we worship. It's we love the Bible, but we don't worship the Bible. The Bible didn't die for us. Jesus is the one who sacrificed his life on the cross. Jesus is the one we worship. Jesus is the one that we adore. Jesus is the one who fully embodies everything that God is and has always been. And the, the completion, the fullness of the revelation of God is when we see Jesus on that cross and while he's being tortured and killed, then he's laying the exact words he speaks, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That is the ultimate revelation of who God is and what God is like. And it's through the lens of Jesus, it is through the revelation of Jesus that we understand every other image in the text. Um, we read Paul through Jesus, not the other way around. Uh, as a Christian, I believe all scripture is inspired, but I can't stress this strongly enough. That Paul is the one who's going to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul is the one who's always pointing people to Jesus as the living and the embodied word of God. The one who literally carries the story of God in his flesh onto the cross, resurrection from the dead, embodying the whole story in, in his very person. The God who raised up Israel and delivered Israel up out of Egypt. Um, all, all of it summed up in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the point for Christians. So every other text, every other idea, we're constantly having to interpret. We, we always have to consider everything through the lens of the Jesus story, which I can't stress just how important that really is on so many different levels. Because when we understand that Jesus is the one, you want to know what the glory of God looks like. Here's Jesus getting in the dirt with us. Here's Jesus um, who 
is always touching lepers. Here's Jesus, friend of the friendless. Here's Jesus who's always in the margins. Here is the one who is crucified outside the gate. If you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what the glory of God looks like, it is the very process that Kenosis described in Philippians 2, the self-emptying of Jesus, that Jesus takes on the form of a servant. Uh, that, that's he, it, it, going all the way to the cross. This self-emptying is the ultimate image of the glory of God. And that relativizes all the other images. Because if Jesus is the full revelation of God, then we understand, how do we understand the glory of God? How, we, how do we understand anything about the, the character of God? Well, Christians, we know about the character of God through the character of the king that is Jesus. We know about the character of God through the Lord of the church that is Jesus. And that story, the Jesus story, then becomes everything to us. Now, y'all know that this is where this gets tricky is that some of us might agree on who Jesus is, that Jesus fully embodies um, the truth of God, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the one who fully reveals God. And yet we disagree about a lot of the other particulars. Here's where I'm going to push back really strong. I get so worn out with the folks acting like they're the, they're the ones who believe the literal word of God. Well, we just believe the literal word of God. And therefore, the things they say about scripture are not opinions, they're not interpretations. I'm just telling you what God says. Friends, I hate to break it to some of y'all, but some of the things that y'all share that are so, um, uh, this is just what the word of God says. Since we're talking, since we started off talking about John MacArthur, let's dive a little bit deeper, shall we? Uh, into the kind of dispensationalism that people like MacArthur and others, and many now in my Pentecostal and charismatic tradition uh, read. These are folks who would maintain we just want a straight reading the Bible. We just do what the Bible says. We just all we care about is what the word says. And yet whole swaths of scripture that determine. Well, are so determinative for how we think about all kinds of things. Uh, I'll hear people talk about like bad theology kills. I think that's true. Generally, yes. I think what kills most often is bad eschatology. There's nothing more toxic. There's nothing more damaging. Um, again, the, the, the preacher's still coming. Sorry about that. Y'all, you know, I can't think of anything that is more destructive than the self-fulfilling prophecy when Christians believe that uh, there's inevitability to uh, their end time script. And where do they get that end time script? Oh, we just, no, we just read about in the Bible. We're just telling you what the, what the Bible says. Are you? Because what MacArthur and all the others in that camp will teach you is this dispensational theology that did not exist until roughly 1850. And the, the thing that they get straight from the pure unadulterated word of God goes roughly like this. The book of Revelation, is of course you know you have this account from john that's written to seven churches now what they do and th this is a pretty wild move if you ask me in a book that's full of dragons and beasts and all kinds of images that are clearly metaphor that, I, that's not a hot take i, I Oh, oh, so you, you don't take the bible literally i believe in the resurrection of jesus i i, I just said that's um, I, I mean, I wish we could, I'll, I'll save my rant about the, the way Christians read in the early church and the layers of meaning and interpretation. And yes, allegory, appropriately so, uh, within the tradition. But in Revelation in particular, like this is a very particular form of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And this idea, oh, well, some of you would say, well, I'm tuning this out right here. You're, you see, you just don't believe in literal word of God. How literal is what you're doing when, because watch this, the only thing that is truly concrete in the book of Revelation is John himself and the seven churches. Remarkably, they turn John and the seven churches into metaphors. Ooh, they turn the only thing literal in the book into poetry. Wow. 
so that the seven churches are not churches, they are church ages that give us a clear sequence of how the end is going to unfold. And they see that when Jesus says to John, come up here, that that is actually a rep that is an image of the church being taken up in rapture. I don't care whether you like it or whether you don't. If you give somebody a Bible and they did read it, more hours than Perry Stone. Maybe they read it for 150,000 hours. There is no way that anybody independently would arrive at the idea that John and these seven churches are actually representative of seven church ages, and then John himself becomes symbolic of the church caught up in rapture somehow. No one would come to that independently. It is a it's a structure. It's a system that has to be taught. You can believe it if you want to, but it's a system. See, and that's what's so maddening about this whole business of these folks acting like they are culture free. Like I said, Mima and Papal had a story too. They came from somewhere. They came from somebody. You come from a particular tradition. Why not just own that? But they take it that this now, that all of this is um, the, the Again, the very concrete, the only physical characters in the book of Revelation, they turn to symbols. Everything else, then they try to interpret literally. Do you know what level of disaster that creates? If y'all are the ones who are so contending for the straight, unadulterated word of God, then how come in the Schofield Study Bible and all the other ones that are like it, because there's several variations of this, and they all do the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount. It has this very like abstract, you would have been, you want to talk about some hippie talk. Um, uh, there's this weird mumbo jumbo about the Sermon on the Mount and the Millennial Kingdom, because the idea, of course, is like, well, well, that stuff actually sounds really hard. These folks that are all about holiness and it's all holiness or hell. And they're the one they're they're part of the, you know, the the one true remnant resisting against the world. Yeah, all in, in some ways, they seem drawn to all the hard stuff, except woo, all that blessing one's enemies, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek. Well, nobody can really do that. This is probably an image of the millennial reign of Christ. Woo! That's some real literal reading right there. So Jesus is the Lord of the church, gives the Magna Carta of discipleship. He gives you his agenda in every way for what it would mean like i mean this is this is the center of the christian life in every way is every contour is in the sermon on the mount and y'all gonna relegate that to some other time some other place and again revelation you turn this the only things that are literal into ages and all that man that's some that's some real plain reading of the decks right there but see that's the kind of business that they do is <laughs> We're the ones who are reading the text right, not realizing, not aware that they also have a culture, that they also have a story, that they also are reading very selectively. Um, everybody, by the way, is reading selectively. Jesus reads from the First Testament selectively. Paul reads from the First Testament selectively. For one, in a beautiful way, Paul and the other epistle writers are punch drunk on Jesus. They see Jesus in every text. They're intoxicated with Jesus. They see Jesus everywhere, even in texts that have nothing to do with messianic prophecy. Uh, in, in just a wonderful way. There are all kinds of creative moves that we have in the New Testament in terms of how the, the Hebrew Bible is interpreted to us. And, you know, so yeah, there are interpretive priorities. There are texts that Jesus will not uh, strike out, but there are some that he minimizes and others that he highlights. There are weightier matters of the law. I didn't come up with that. That's not moral relativism. That's the Lord of the church. Jesus is the one who says there are weightier matters of the law. Jesus is the one who gives us this image. In fact, how often do we get it in the text? And this is why I'm so sensitive to these things right now. What we see through the stories of Jesus is actually in religiosity and piety that the people who are most committed theoretically, ostensibly to knowing the truth are over and over again, missing the truth that's right in front of them. And so often these stories are provocative. So often they stretch us. They're always about misfits. They're always about outcasts. They're always about outsiders in ways that absolutely have to be relevant to the moment that we are leading. Those texts, those gospel texts are doing theology. That's another kind of thing that John MacArthur says that because I'm saying, obviously, a lot of things I really feel that I truly hate uh, is, is this general kind of idea that you can't do theology from the Gospels. Who says that Jesus doesn't know how to do theology? 
the theology, not only in the stories that he tells, but in the story that he lives. Who says that's not the theology? It's, uh, yeah, there are all kinds of interpretive decisions. But see, I am aware, and hopefully all of us will be aware, that when we come to the text, that we are making interpretive decisions. There is no preacher who's not making interpretive moves. Everybody is doing the work of interpretation. But this is why it's so maddening to me when people act like that what they're doing does not involve interpretive work, that they are somehow like a medium that for, for just, I'm just proclaiming what the text says. No one is just proclaiming what the text says. And the reason we have to approach these things with humility is that, well, of course, all of us are inevitably we're wrong about all kinds of things. Because okay, is it all right if I quote the Apostle Paul to y'all? We know in part. We prophesy in part. See, that's another place where you guys are misunderstood is that y'all will fill in that. But then but then Paul says, when that which is perfect is come, and that's the scripture, the word of God. Good friends, that which is perfect is the is the kingdom of God fully realized and uh, when the Lord and rightful uh, king of the church and of the world of the cosmos finally ushers in his peaceful reign, that's the that which is perfect. It's not a book. Um, that's not the idea. Uh, but there again, there's the hyper focus on scripture almost to a place of scripture worship where it can, no one would plead guilty to this, but functionally usurps Jesus, the son, as the object, the ultimate object of authority. Um, woo, there's a lot I could say about that. But see, then from these moves, because it's all part and parcel of the same things, there, there are a handful of other there moves within the moves that, I, you know, I'm not saying they're disastrous. I, you, you get to believe whatever you want. But, yeah, there are real differences here. See, I think part of what my good brother seems to be objecting to on some level is that the Christians like who are here, who are doing the thing, they're talking about justice in the world. Um, so they're expressing concern for this earth. You know, this earth, you might have heard about it in the Psalms where the psalmist said that the earth is the Lord uh, is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. You know, that earth, um, this earth that God creates and that God, yes, fallen, but that God creates good. See, that's the other interpretive problem. Um, I, I mean, there are a bunch, but see, for me, these are all very connected. They interpret the world as the earth, as in the planet. So then it becomes... Um, whenever Paul, for example, talks about the world and Jesus will talk about the world as well, they're reading this as the world is bad and the world will ultimately be burned up. We have those images say like, for example, in Peter, uh, the elements melting with fervent heat, all that, you know, th th they interpret it as if the earth itself is the bad thing. Okay, y'all, that actually is a catastrophic understanding of the text in the same way that it's catastrophic when Paul talks about the flesh, if you read that as your body, y'all, the New Testament is written in protest largely to the kind of thinking that the material world, that the physical world is somehow inherently or implicitly bad. That is largely what the New Testament is, 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 is a protest against. No, materiality is not evil. No, materiality is not fundamentally just cursed and wicked. How do we know this? Because Jesus, as God the Son, is the Word of God who became enfleshed. The Word became flesh. The Word became a human being. And in Jesus, we have a prototype now. We have a template now. May I quote the Apostle Paul to y'all reformers again? That Paul is the one that says that Jesus is the first of a long line who will one day rise from the dead. That in the same way that Jesus enters into death, but then is raised to life, that now that becomes the pattern for all who are in Christ. That ultimately will become the pattern for all of creation. This is why Paul will say in Romans 8 that the creation itself groans and sighs with sighing too deep for words for the restoration that's coming. And what does that restoration looks like? Specifically, the creation is groaning for the manifestation of the children of God. 
for the manifestation of the children of God. We've got so many people sitting on the bus stop waiting for Jesus, when in reality, the world is waiting on us. The world is waiting on the children of God to realize who they really are. The world is waiting on the, I feel like preaching right now, and all I got is Stella and my action figures who are in my little office here, but I've been preaching my action figures since I was five, so I believe that's all right. So the world is looking for the manifestation of God's children. The world is waiting for people to know the depth of their belovedness, to know that they are loved by God, to know that they are made in the image of God, and then to act like they know that they are beloved. That instead of living out of insecurity, that instead of living fractured, of this fractured sense of self, that they're able to become of something bigger and larger of this God movement in the world. That's what the world is waiting on. But you got these folks who are waiting for Jesus at the bus stop with their bags packed. Once again, all this hinges on poor interpretations of a handful of words and ideas. Um, well, and also how we read imagery, right? I mean, because it becomes like the idea. Yeah, hey, look, this is this is what you're always hear. What about judgment? Y'all, y'all, I believe in judgment. I also just happen to believe that God's judgment looks much different than my judgment. You know what my judgment looks like is if you cut me off in traffic, I throw the middle finger. Um, my judgment looks like when I'm angry, my fire, the fire that burns in me is destructive. Friends, the fire that not only burns in God, but the fire that is God is not like my fire. My fire is destructive. The fire of God does not destroy. The fire of God purifies. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, this is much more readily understood. We lose a lot, a lot of that in the split between East and West. We lose a lot of things. We lose a lot of, we lose the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Not literally, but we lose emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Um, the, uh, the whole idea, though, of judgment as refiner's fire, which also, by the way, uh, largely we, we get plenty of this language from the Apostle Paul that y'all like so much. Uh, and I do too. I just don't understand why, why, why don't you like that, Paul? Why don't you like Paul when he gives us these images of the fire that refines? See, um, when you understand, to go back to this thing about the world, because it's so important, the world, any of the negative things the scripture says about the world is not about the planet. It's not about the soil. It's about the systems of the world. The language that also the apostle Paul. See, I've read Paul once or twice. I'm like Perry Stone. Has it been 80,000 hours? <laughs> I'm being silly. But Paul in Ephesians, principalities and powers. There are systems and structures in the world. And one of the reasons that some of us keep going on about the things that we're going on about in terms of injustice is because we do believe that sometimes that these systems and structures, these principalities and powers embody a kind of evil, a kind of oppression um, that that in fact, it's bound up in these systems. We see this over and over again through Jesus. Um, oh gosh, there's so much I want to say. The the man in Mark five, the, the with the legion of demons. Um, what this is all the the legion. There there are Roman legions. It's a it's a Roman imperial army image for a reason because uh, this man is as he's being delivered from this demonic oppression there's also very much this idea that Jesus also is coming to deliver people from the, the systems and structures that were in that enslave God's people that enslave God's children around the world um yeah i mean this is all this is just all over the text but the world then becomes it's it's so funny for folks that are so that feel like they're so literal. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't mean to just keep punching at John MacArthur, but that's the thing for 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 some of these folks like Brother MacArthur, who are so certain that they are teaching the literal absolute truth. I will have never yet got my head around the fact that. Y'all can't even say that uh, that Jesus died for everybody. Can't even say that. Oh well, uh, no. Uh, God uh, is actually here. Um, uh, when, when Jesus, when it talks about how Jesus, God so loved the world, the world here is actually the elect. And uh, y'all like Perry Stone doing those crossword puzzles in Greek and Hebrew for all, not to mean all. I mean, actually doing like 
cartwheels, all kinds of contortions and gymnastics for God not to love everybody and for the all-redeeming, all-encompassing love of God not to be fully available. So that, to work it out how that's only for the select few. Super literal reading of the text, you guys. Well done. These, how you read the world, how you read the flesh, how we understand salvation itself. And that's the last thing I'm going to punch on and then I'm done. But part of what just breaks my heart about this whole system of teaching is that sin becomes largely just a forensic judicial problem that needs to be solved, is a legal loophole. Uh, God sends Jesus to die on the cross because that's the only way that it can somehow satisfy the contract so that we can then declare, uh, we can be declared righteous. There is legal imagery. There is courtroom imagery in Romans in particular that I love. I think it's misinterpreted. Uh, and there's plenty I could say about that. But another thing that I feel like we lose large in the split from east to west is that sin is not just identified as this forensic judicial problem, but as a as a sickness that needs to be healed. Uh, I come from a Wesleyan tradition because see, I'm connected to a story and the people that I come from. And within that story, Wesley very much has this focus, this idea that uh, salvation brings healing from the sickness of sin. So that ultimately, it's not just a matter of some legal declaration of justification or forgiveness, but we actually are able to become more when we're not um, enslaved to selfishness, when it's not all about us, we uh, there there is a becoming, there is a becoming. Again, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, th this is captured so much better, this idea that we are actually becoming, we are now being remade into the, um, so, so the image of God in us is being restored. And First John talks about, yeah, we, we have not yet seen him, but we know when we do see him, we will become as he is. And the more we behold him, the more we're being transformed into the image and likeness of the Christ. That is a beautiful, beautiful theology. But that I feel like all too often gets lost within this shuffle where the, largely for the same reasons, there's a lot of language that becomes it does become judicial. It does become legal. It, it doesn't, it, it, without getting the fully orbed humanity that is so central to the gospels. God has become fully God and fully man, in the words of Irenaeus, the enfleshed word that is Jesus the Christ. But I got news for y'all. I don't even, I'm not even pretending to say, uh, as much as I love scripture and honor scripture and believe in the authority of scripture, precisely because I believe the word of God is in flesh is exactly why I have to listen to friends, siblings within the body of Christ who don't look like me, whose story is not my story, whose tradition is not my tradition. Uh, that's precisely where, where I need to be shaped and I need pushback and where I'm always being taught because in other parts of the body of Christ, uh, Paul, Oh, can I give you some more, Paul? This is also Paul, the body of Christ, all these many, uh, these many parts that come together to form one body. They are diverse. And by the way, what does Paul say? Oh, man, I need to stop being so preachy. What does Paul say about the parts that are dishonored? They get they only get more honor. The parts that have been dishonored should be honored more. The parts that have been dishonored and been shamed should get more honor. They shouldn't be slighted the way John MacArthur's theology does. I don't care if he's not consciously conspicu conspicuously a racist. He ought to listen to some black Christians. He ought to listen to the black church. And it would do some good actually to maybe listen to the Pentecostal church um, and, and some of the voices outside the witness of his own tradition. We need each other in this way. But when you think that your tradition has it all, when you think your tradition is everything, when you think you got everything, which is my issue with a lot of these guys, they think they have it all. They think they grasp the full revelation. Well, brother, I do have the revelation. I've got this Bible in my hands. Hey, brother, because you know these are all men that are saying this, so that's direct. You got a Bible in your hands, but you actually don't have 
the full expression of the living, breathing body of Christ, this organism that exists in all kinds of times and places around the world um, that is that is on the move in the way that the God of the Exodus is always on the move. Yeah, you're not holding that in your hands. And that same Holy Spirit, see, the MacArthurites don't like this either because they think, you know, we got the, we have the scripture and now um, who needs the, they wouldn't say who needs the Holy Spirit, but it can feel like that because it's like, well, here, here's the word. Jesus talks about how the spirit will guide us into all truth. And yes, it is absolutely true that we need these bodies of Christ, these individual bodies, these other humans in the body through their lived story, through their lived witness, through their living and breathing testimony the story of the, the 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 enfleshed son of god that is jesus is being brought to bear in in all kinds of ways that we need to see and to hear and yes as we learn from our siblings in Christ, as we learn from their stories and experiences. It's not that the text changes. I know y'all love to talk about that, how the, how, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Y'all ain't nobody up in here trying to say that God is changing, but I will tell you that our perspective is constantly shifting and changing, even on the text which God has given to us. The more that we are living into the story of God, we are coming to see this story from different perspective. And we need those perspectives. And yes, we read in humility. Yes, we read in reverence and all of that. But we do need different perspectives. It is not that the word changes, but we absolutely are changing and shifting in our understanding of that word as we follow the living Jesus, as we follow the God of the Exodus, who is still very much on the move. And I know that sounds like heresy to some folks, which is why Pentecostals in general sound like heretics to a lot of people, because yes, I do still believe in a God who is on the move, that the God who moved and delivering Israel up out of Egypt is still on the move right now, is still delivering, is still moving, is still healing. And yes, I do believe that the gospel story, not that, that scripture proper is being rewritten somehow, but I do believe that the gospel story that is Jesus is being enacted and lived out in all kinds of stories all around the world right now. And do you know how many wonderful opportunities we have then that as we see um, the story of God on the move in the real lives of people around us, that the text becomes alive. The text become becomes illuminated. The text lights up. The text of scripture, the text of our own lives, it all lights up so that ultimately we are able to see Jesus in his glory. Because I do believe in the glory of God. And I do believe in the of in the exalted God. It's just that I believe that the, the image of the glory of God is a God that's lifted on the cross. It's a God revealed in humility, in self-giving. I didn't plan to say this, and it, it might even sound funny as preachy as I've been, but I've been doing a class on Shisaku Endo's uh, novel, Silence, and one of the most powerful scenes in literature is in that. You The, the priest who uh, I'm not going to deny Jesus no matter what, can't deny Jesus, not going to apostatize. That's the whole thing. The priest that came before him had denied Christ, and he's not going to deny Jesus no matter what, because holding to the integrity of his faith is more important to him than anything else. And the powerful scene, I was just reading with my students this week, um, towards the end of the novel, where the priest himself has to trample on the fume, um, this image of Jesus. There's an image of Jesus and he has to trample on it and he can't do it because he's too committed to Jesus to do that. But what he knows is that if he doesn't trample on the image, then the emperor is going to kill all these other Japanese Christians. And in that moment, he has a revelation where the image of Jesus that he beholds actually speaks to him and he hears, uh, he hears the actual voice of God, he hears the voice of Jesus who calls him to trample on the image, who tells him to trample on me. And for me, it's such a poignant image for the moment that we're in that so many of us, in the name of defending God's character, in the name of defending God's image or the images that we think we have from scripture, somehow don't follow the living witness 
of the one who uh, my friend Chris Green's great phrase of really that sums up all of Romans is that God would rather not be God. God would choose to not be God than to be God without us. We aren't able to follow the Jesus who would say, <laughs> instead, that's my concern is that these images of God, these ideas of God become so lofty that we're not able to follow the God that ultimately is not consumed with God's own namesake, um, but to actually go the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the self the self-emptying, you know, Jesus, uh, I know there's a way that, that Jesus dies on the cross for us, but the one who died on the cross for us also says, take up your cross and follow me. And I think a lot of what that looks like right now is for Christians to humble themselves and not think that they know everything and to not think that all that their understanding of scripture is somehow complete to understand that we still have more to love, uh, more to learn rather, that to follow Jesus on that path of self-emptying, to not put our own knowledge, which the apostle Paul says that knowledge puffs up, right? Am I right? But instead to follow that Jesus into, into humility, we're still learning. We're still growing. The book that we hold in our hands may be complete, but the script of what God is doing in humanity and how we understand that and how our stories connect to that story, oh yeah, that all is still very much, our understanding of all that is very, very incomplete. And some of you may not agree with me about that. That's fine. But I will tell you, it is a more beautiful, it's more beautiful down here. It's lovelier down here. Um, where there's still room for surprise and wonder and even astonishment in the same way that Jesus of Nazareth, when he was on the move, when he was going about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. Did you notice? I've read the Bible a time or two. As, as we follow that Jesus in the same way that it was in the text, there are still moments where we can be surprised, where we can be taken off guard, where there are still... Uh, all kinds of colors and shades. Uh, oh, and there's these moments over and over again where it feels like we get to fall in love with God, for, like it's the first time and fall in love with the people around us, fall in love with humanity. That's the way I choose to live. That's the way I want to live. Thanks for joining me on the Zeitcast, everybody. Take care. We'll do this again.